This podcast is brought to you by Maddox Lawyers, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Planning Exchange podcast. I'm Jess Noonan, and as always, I'm joined by Peter Jewell. We encourage you to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org so that you can read up on all of our special podcast guests. Our website also contains direct links to all of our previous podcasts, now available on iTunes and SoundCloud. We've had some really encouraging feedback from our fans recently and some fantastic suggestions for new topics and speakers, one of whom was suggested by our friends at Niche Planning Studio, and she's our special guest today, Claire McCracken. Claire is a mixed media artist and a PhD candidate at RMIT University. She's a recipient of the prestigious Vice-Chancellor's Scholarship and was a creative brain behind Section 32, an immersive installation experience which transformed a suburban house on a quiet suburban street in Baronia. Welcome, Claire. Thanks for having me. Not a problem. Now, I know that's only a teaser of your very extensive experience, so I'll let you give a little bit more of a detailed overview of your background, as I don't want to miss anything. <laughs> um, it was pretty pretty good teaser. Good, that was okay. <laughs> yep, <laughs> great. Um, but I guess the only thing to perhaps emphasise is that my arts practice is generally outside the gallery bay um, gallery. So I'm really interested in creating site specific works um, within the urban fabric. And how long have you been in this space for now? Um, just over ten years. Ten years, amazing. So Claire, you're a street artist. <laughs> it gets the minute I say I'm outside the gallery. Um, yep, most people assume I'm a graffiti artist, but no, I um, I actually grew up on a hundred acres of bush. I don't have that urban route, um, <laughs> and I don't work with a crew. Okay. So, what's your official title? Are you an artist? Um, I you look. It took me years to have the confidence to say that, but yes, I'm an artist. Um, and some people might call me socially engaged in that I'm really interested in telling the stories of ordinary Australians. So you're a socially engaged outside gallery artist. There we go. Sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so we just wanted to start off quickly today. Um, obviously, there's some direct relationships with urban planning and the um, artistic world that you're in. Um, what's, what's your opinion on that interrelationship? Um, well, I think planning and art for a very long time now, like pretty much since the 60s, have, have had a tight relationship for a number of reasons. I mean, art is often used as a way of placemaking or um, as part of the process of revitalising locations. Mm -hmm. um, but increasingly, I've been really interested in the role of art as, uh, as building scenarios to develop discussions within communities before we start construction and transformation, or even once that process has started, if there's, if there's hesitation or a lack of understanding about what's going on. Mm -hmm. Does that, uh, be cynical, Claire, does that mean you're being co-opted by the forces of development to make <laughs> change more palatable to the poor citizens? Um, it could be, or perhaps I'm giving the poor citizens a voice um, that they don't have. I mean, I I'm sure it comes as a frustration of planners too, the fact that planning is so adversarial that, you know, you're asked for objections rather than perhaps, um, you know, creative uh, assistance. <laughs> um, so, yes, I would like to think that rather than me, and I, look, I've never been funded by a developer. Um, I'm usually funded by local or state government. Um, I'd like to think that people like me can play a role of, of really cutting through some of that tension 
um, and getting to the, the crux of the issue. Now, do you want to just give us a little bit of a background about Section 32 and how that all came about? Yeah, so Section 32 um, was commissioned by Knox City Council. Um, they, a house was donated to them by a developer. So the city of Knox is on the eastern, in the e outer eastern suburbs um, and the house was located in Baronia, which is around 30 to 40 kilometres from the CBD. Um, the house will eventually, you know, subject to planning, be demolished and turned into medium density. That's what's happening in that area, particularly around the central roads. Mm -hmm. um, so when I was given the house, I, I was really interested in that transformation and, and really the transformation that Melbourne's going under at the moment as a whole, this idea that, you know, we are a rapidly expanding city like so many cities around the, the world. So I proposed to Knox City Council that I create an immersive installation that was set in a suburban home um, 100 years in the future mm -hmm. as a way of getting people talking about the development that's happening now but also, you know, how they want to shape their communities for the next 100 years. And what what is the house going to be like in 100 years' time? Well, of course, because I'm an artist, it was heavily informed by the history of um, Melbourne's planning um, and it was also informed by a whole lot of um, futurists and people writing about the mobility's turn um, and kind of projections for the future, but it also took a fair bit of creative license. And the futurists, mm. we're talking about 1910, those futurists? Um, yes, a little bit, but actually more people building scenarios around about cities. So, you know, there's a number of people, in particularly in sociology, who are kind of dreaming up these amazing scenarios that cities like Melbourne could go, and they often have a, a series of ideas and if you're working in that space you get to choose which direction. Now we've had the benefit of having a look at your ebook on section 32. Do you want to just quickly um, perhaps walk our listeners through what the rooms in the house were or how they actually presented? Yeah so um, when you got to the site the house was painted black mm -hmm. um, which was a reference to 2001 Space Odyssey. It was like the black monolith that had appeared from the future to um, you know to present to the past a narrative. Um, you had a briefing um, which explained that the house was from the future and then people entered the house in groups of 10. And the moment you swung that, swung that door open, the house started talking to you. So we were tapping into the concept of, you know, the internet of things, the fa fact that the house itself would become um, technological. Um, as you move through the house, the future it presented was at times uh, utopian, mm -hmm. um, particularly in the bathroom where we were cultivating yabbies and um, herbs and spices to supplement our diets. But on the whole, um, was a little bit dy dystopian. Um, so it explored the impact of things like virtual reality. It looked at increases in, um, sorry, decreases in, in labour due to technological advances. Um, and also the way that climate may shift and start permeating um, the suburban home. Mm -hmm. Well, one of my favourite sayings is the future is our friend. Would you, do you agree with that? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think without, without thinking... There's a great quote, actually, at the end of Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything, where um, she quotes somebody else that said... When um, history comes knocking, will you open the door? And I think part of that is talking about the future and planning for it. Mm. Now, you lived and worked in the space and that helped 
uh, shaped into it. Is that right? Yeah, so it was actually a tricky way to get around to planning initially. I had mm. to um, move into the house uh, and live there for the month leading up to the installation. But I'm so glad I did because mm. I, I'm not from the suburbs. I've never lived in the suburbs. And so that was actually a really important part of the research process to be embedded in that house for a month and to get to know the neighbourhood and start mm. conversations with, yeah, with the neighbours. How did the neighbours react? Um, look, amazingly well, because yeah. you're dealing with a suburb that has um, varying degrees of arts um, uh, education and also engagement. I mean, there's members of that community that are seriously engaged, but there's people that have never been into immersive installation. But the minute we painted that house black, there was definitely intrigue. So the public... Uh, relish these sort of art experiments do you think yeah i mean i take it really seriously when i've been funded by a specific local government that that it is accessible to that community is absolutely vital and i think um, it's about making the rules of engagement really clear so you know some of the reasons why some people don't enter the gallery sector is because of those invisible rules that they see so um, with Section 32, and that was the point of the really quite humorous briefing at the beginning, was making sure that people were on board and understood how to engage with the work so that they could really relax when they entered it and enjoy it and take it on board rather than kind of thinking about what they should or shouldn't be doing. Now, this is a slightly controversial question and I know um, it's one you're slightly uncomfortable about answering, is about art and gentrification in cities and whether or not they go hand in hand. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's something that we <laughs> debate all the time. So I um, work in the Art and Public Space Department at RMIT University and, um, you know, within public forums in the university sector, we discuss it all the time. Um, and, you know, art has definitely been used to gentrify cities. But, of course, artists are also great victims of gentrification often because we are very quickly... While we might be used in the beginning to make an area look funky, mm. we are very quickly priced out um, mm. and we can't afford to rent studios or, you know, our live music venues are closed down and we no longer get to play in them. Mm. Um, so I guess, you know, as, uh, you know, we are a victim of gentrification but so are a whole series of other people. Um, so it's about making sure that if we are a part of it that we still plan for cities that have diverse populations within them. Did Section 32 create any gentrification in Baronia? Well, interestingly, so housing in Baronia is now, um, because of the increased development, is incredibly high if you want a house on a quarter acre block. Mm. Um, however, what that medium density is doing is creating actually affordable houses, which are sitting at about $300,000. Um, so that gives young people a chance to enter the housing market in the communities that they grew up in. Um, and I also met people as part of the project who were using those cheaper houses to downsize. So they were getting enormous amounts off their quarter acre block because it was being bought by a developer. Mm. Um, and then they were moving from there into these smaller housing. A couple of things, Claire. I think you'd be an excellent witness at VCAP in support of development. <laughs> but also, um, <laughs> Section 32, that's a play on words for people outside Victoria. Can you just understand what section 32 actually is yeah so I think a lot of people just thought we'd chosen it because it sounded sci-fi but um <laughs> <laughs> but it's what a um seller of a house must put together um as part of the land act um and actually the title did end up kind of exposing some really interesting things the fact that 
it, it did expose the fact that young people are having a lot of trouble entering the housing market because people under the age of 35 tended to not know what a section 32 was. I only knew because I used to, my first job was photocopying them for a real estate agent. Fun times. <laughs> <laughs> now, Claire, I'm just going to read a small bit from your e-book um, around Hugh Stretton's quote about, um, okay, it's not actually a quote, but um, Hugh was a strong advocate of the suburbs and the quarter acre block and he discusses the egalitarian nature of the standalone house on a block of land and pointing out that while the scale of the houses often differed, the quality of materials were variable and the quarter acre block ensured the most that most Australians had the same lifestyle. Can you have a chat around that? Yeah, when I, um, so when that comes from Hugh Stretton's book, Ideas for Australian Cities. 1975. Yeah, which as a non-planner is a bit of a dry read. Yeah. Um, so I was um, quite relieved when I got to that section and had an aha moment, made it all <laughs> worth it. Worth it. Um, yeah, I guess as somebody that grew up in the country, not in the suburbs, I've always you know, wondered what their hold was um, in the history of art with artists like Howard Arkley and there's a, many other contemporary examples as well. Um, and when I read that, I was like, you're right, that is really interesting that, um, you know, so many Australians, I think, you know, it's, it's that around about 75% at, at one point have had this very similar understanding in childhood and lifestyle. Um, and, you know, I think that will become... it's one of the challenges for local governments like the city of Knox is how they breed empathy between those sections of the community, the ones that are on the quarter acre block and the ones that are in medium density. And certainly as part of the project, a lot of the conversations I had, um, those people in the smaller housing were being called the other. Um, so yeah, it'll be an interesting conundrum for us. Many artists and um, intellectuals have despised the suburbs. I'm thinking of, it goes back a long way, like George Johnson in My Brother Jack mm -hmm. uh, painted a pretty horrid picture of the suburbs. Living in the suburbs for the first time, did it change your elitist views of the suburbs? Well, uh, I'm being cheeky. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because whenever I read an article about artists working in the suburbs, it's, it points that out. It's, you know, like the Australian ugliness on, we all hate the suburbs. However, there is actually another narrative, which is a narrative of artists really loving and reflecting the suburbs. And um, you know, an example of that would be Clarice Beckett, who um, has become more prominent in the history books, um, but she painted exclusively, almost exclusively, the um, suburbs. Howard Arkley is another really obvious example. And there's a whole series of contemporary artists working in the suburbs, like uh, all with the... Um, the suburban house, um, so artists like Ian Strange. So I agree that, yes, there has been this kind of intellectual um, hatred of the suburbs, but that has existed hand in hand with people that have really enjoyed looking at it. Um, my art practices always come from community and I think if you can't talk to the suburbs, you're missing out on a very significant audience. I mean, it's it is our largest audience middle in Australia. Australia. Yeah, I mean, if you can't speak to middle Australia, you're, you're going to have a very small audience. Can we talk a little bit about civic pride and what that means in terms of um, some of the work that you're doing? Do you think, for example, Section 32 and some of the other installations you've done have influenced um, the civic pride of that particular area? Um, contributed to it? I think they potentially could, mm. um, but I never want to overstate what I can achieve as an artist. Yeah. 
Um, there's a theatre maker from Canada that has a term that I prefer. So his name is Darren O'Donnell and he says, Art, arts, artists can't change the world, which I probably agree with. I think that, you know, in the context of Melbourne, footballers do a much better job. <laughs> um, but he says, he, he coins the term social acupuncture and he suggests that art, what artists can do is they can get a needle and they can stick it in an area of tension mm. and they can get a discourse happening and they can free it up a little bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's what I can realistically achieve over solving any of the world's big problems. Do you think the bar's been raised, though, with Civic Pride over the last, I don't know, decade or thereabouts, particularly in Melbourne and in some of our suburbs or country towns? the other one yeah I mean I think that design has become um perhaps embraced in large infrastructure projects Mm. like if I think of roads like East Link um or or you know work happening um in train stations now where Mm. we are getting architects in to design you know a lot about that one too don't you (laughs) (laughs) yeah because I mean the other part of this is that artists have and still are brought into bad situations where designers haven't been engaged and you know we are putting the lipstick on the gorilla i couldn't i couldn't wait to say <laughs> lipstick on the pig <laughs> but, but claire you know what, what amazes me down in dandenong road uh, there's a tram line and the tram stanchions the supports for the wires are quite beautiful they were done in the 20s when you contrast that to new infrastructure work the, the ugliness is just there's no idea of that of that civic pride or what's been from design now, you mentioned some outstanding infrastructure projects like Eastlink, but there's still art is very much or design is very much a last thing thought of, do you think? Yeah, and I do think, you know, even a criticism of Section 32 when we had a major art um, article in The Age, you know, the first comment is waste of taxpayers' money. There is definitely a culture in Australia which... I find, I think we have to talk about, but I find endlessly frustrating after 10 years of having that said to mm. me, um, that doesn't realise the importance of good design is and the importance the Fair, of art. Is that just the Fairfax Press, <laughs> anti-art? Or? Um, look, I, I think it's a really strongly held belief. And, mm. um, you know, I'm, I've been going through a few open um, for inspections and looking at houses. And, and one of the things that frustrates me the most about housing affordability now is houses are not just expensive, but the lion's share of them are built terribly. Mm. And if you know anything about construction, um, you see that straight away. Um, you know, doors opening into each other, wasted spaces that haven't been thought about and de- designed for properly. Definitely. Can you talk, Claire, just a bit about your position at RMIT and the faculty that you're in? Yeah, so um, I... Uh, originally um, did the course. So there's a great master's course in art and public space at RMIT. And I I had did for a period teaching that, um, but at the moment I'm now doing my PhD. But I run an elective um, in art and um, public space as part of the fine arts degree. So the master's course is this amazing melting pot of architects, planners, landscape architects, artists, um, and often also arts administrators who come together to do that Um, master's degree and really flesh out some of the issues we've been talking today about site-specific art outside the gallery. Mm. Now you mentioned as well um, when we caught up the other day that as an artist it's your job to shine a light on society. Is this light to provide a vision into the future or to look at what's happening now? I think it's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, sometimes it, it can also include looking into the past and recording, mm. um, you know, recording the really amazing shifts we've gone over in the last, well, in my lifetime alone. Definitely. Melbourne's had a bit of a love-hate relationship with public art. I'm thinking about the Yellow Peril or the Vault and um, there doesn't seem to be many new permanent installations in, in civic places. There has been a couple um, in the city of Melbourne. So um, one of the things uh, that the city of Melbourne has been trying to remedy um, is the lack of um, monuments for women and also mm. for diverse people. So there's been two new um, monument works, a really large-scale women's suffrage um, monument that celebrates women getting the vote and there's a new monument that people might have seen outside the old Melbourne jail at the edge of the RMIT campus which appeared this year which celebrates and I'm sorry I can't pronounce their names but celebrates uh is perhaps not the commemorates is a better word (laughs) commemorates the life of the only two people that were hung publicly in Melbourne which were two Tasmanian Indigenous men um, and that ev- event was quite a significant event in early colonial Melbourne and, um, you know, shifted the course of um, the way we talked about punishment um, but also, of course, um, ended in the death of two people. Um, so and that m- monument has taken quite a few years to produce and it's made by an Indigenous artist. Um, But yes, you're right. I mean, in the CBD, there hasn't been a lot simply because of the way policy has evolved over time. Um, But in places like the Docklands with percentage for art, we've seen uh, public art happen en masse. Mm. Is that because public arts administrators and councils are timid or worry about backlash with, with art? No, actually, it's interesting because there can be more backlash with temporary works because a work that's up for a month to 12 months, which is what you most commonly get now in the CBD, can actually be more controversial because people are worried about bang for the buck. Mm. Um, but And the other great thing about that temporary work is sometimes um, braver local governments can take a bit of a political risk. Um, and so you can get more interesting, contentious works happening Um, I mean, the way that an artwork is commissioned just can change the tone entirely. I mean, some of the stuff down at the Docklands um, was commissioned by the Docklands Authority, the former Docklands Authority, so it had one purpose. And then you get works that have been commissioned by developers. They often have a different, an entirely different aesthetic. Um, Yeah, so, I mean, I think that, no, I think sometimes people have taken really interesting um, risks, particularly in the laneway commissions, that, which were temporary works that Melbourne City Council commissioned over about 10 years. Mm. Do you see um, one of the main uh, purposes of public installations to to be, I guess, the conversation starter within the community? I'm thinking of um, famous cheese sticks, um, <laughs> which is um, a public art piece on the CityLink project. Um, which I think is actually meant to be a zip into the city. Yeah, I think they slightly moved the road. Yeah, and I think so that's it right. actually didn't unzip. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, um, of course, the famous hotel on the East Link Freeway. Is it East Link or Monash? East Link. East Link. Um, do you think it's more important that people are having a conversation around those pieces rather than getting the full or the correct interpretation? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, being noticed is definitely better too. (laughs) So being slightly controversial and having a conversation would be more successful than not. 
And creating um, debate as well amongst the community about what it actually is meant to be. Is it cheese sticks or zip, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, the cheese sticks are a great example of an artwork that's really used to locate yourself. You mm. know, it's a ge- geographic marker. Yeah. Yeah. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Song Bowden Planning. Song Bowden specialise in management of planning permits, planning scheme amendments and representation at DCAT and planning panels. Also thanks to SALT3 and the Victorian Planning Reports for their ongoing support. And, and what about, say, White Night or Vivid in Sydney? Those sort of massive public displays of art, they seem to be so successful. Yeah, they do. I mean, I'm not sure. Um, we don't. We know very little about the successes of White Knight, other than the numbers, because there's no business case or available. Yeah. Or do that? Does that take art dollars away from a smaller project? Um, in some ways, uh, yes and no. So, I mean, initially when White Knight started, that it, that was in the wake of a couple of um, state government cuts to art funding. Um, but the current government has restored a lot of those and the arts within Victoria, um, not so much federally, but within Victoria are funded quite well. Um, my hesitation, I guess, is in artist fees mm. um, and the artist fees for White Knight are very low, um, whereas I'm sure the tech crews setting up don't take a hit for the team. Mm. <laughs> um, and look, it's really common and it's an ongoing discussion that is really important that we have in art schools about artists making sure that they uh, see themselves as, um, as, as people that deserve to be paid for their um, unique and, and incredible skill set. Professionals. Professionals. Yeah. yeah. So what can we do to help encourage more artistic, creative city making? Um, I think it's starting the conversation right back at the beginning, so making sure we don't always lipstick the gorilla um, and bringing artists into the discussion really early. Um, You know, just like any industry, when you have diverse minds around the table, um, you will get really interesting contributions that will Mm -hmm. shift things um, in ways that I can't even imagine. Claire, how can planning, I mean, I was so impressed with your Section 32 document. We'll have a link on our website to it. But how can the planning profession assist the arts in in fulfilling its role in the community? Um, Big question. Yeah, huge question. I mean, to start with, thinking about it (laughs) and seeing it as a really legitimate contributor to the conversation, you know, um, funding it uh, is really, really important. And Section 32 would not have been possible had we not had a house donated and then had local government giving us money. Um, There was an enormous amount of creatives. Uh, You know, I'm talking on its behalf, but there was um, six or seven of us involved in the overall project. So they they can add up and they are expensive. The final thing I think that planning can really contribute is in in how they support artists. And Knox City Council did this beautifully with Mm. working very closely with me to problem solve the issues that we had with planning. Um, you know, artists aren't trained in these areas. So helping them access the things that they require, helping them project manage, um, really supporting them through the process um, can make the artwork so much more successful. Mm-hmm. And sometimes on public art, 
commissions, um, you know, the onus is entirely on the artist. So they will do everything from, you know, fabrication through to delivery, mm. which is extraordinary. We don't ask that of architects. Um, and so really holding their hand and supporting them, I think, would actually end A, in a little bit less stress for the artist, mm. but B, in better results. Definitely. Now, a question we always finish with on our podcast is what are you currently reading, watching or listening to that inspires you? Um, I was glad you gave me a bit of notice on that one because <laughs> I was like, what am I reading? Um, I'm reading an enormous amount because I'm doing a PhD. Um, but there's two books I've been really enjoying. So yeah. the first one is Nationalism in Australian Visual Culture mm -hmm. um, by Trudy Allen, uh, which was written about 10 years ago. And it's got me really thinking about, you know, even the cliches of Australian culture that I use in my own work um, and, and, you know, thinking about how little the arts represents the mainstream. Yeah. Um, so I've really been enjoying that book. But also perhaps um, where terms like un-Australian and things like that have kind of repopular because she's writing this just after September 11th when those terms mm. really and, and now we're seeing them emerge again. So I've enjoyed critically thinking about those things um, and thinking about the local and the global. Um, the other book I've been reading for quite some time because it's quite heavy is Post-Humanism um, by a philosopher called um, Rosie Bedati, mm -hmm. an Italian philosopher. Um, so post-humanism is a movement in um, philosophy that is talking about not post the human being but post the movement of humanism. Mm. So um, talking about the way in which the environment um, and identity itself is becoming increasingly fluid. Mm -hmm. And I think we can see that happening around us and this book gives you a great um, framework for understanding that and also makes me feel really positive about it as well. Mm. Amazing. Well, Claire, thanks very much for the most informative discussion um, and Jess. And uh, Jess and I would like to thank VIPLA and uh, the Planning Institute of Australia and also the Planning Institute of New Zealand for their ongoing support. So thanks, Claire, and thanks, Jess. Thank, thank you. you.